0: Well, if you have your Bibles ready, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're working our way through the letters of the New Testament and um, applying them to church and how we worship. Um, we're getting a little bit of a taste of um, how the early church worship. They would take the letters, read them in their worship time, and then talk about them, sing songs. They had songs of their own. They usually sang psalms, some of the psalms that they would sing. So they would add these things to worship, and they would include the letters as well as parts of the Old Testament as well. Um, so um, what we what we do in church is not really new. And you know, I know there's lots of times new uh, churches get planted, they're new churches, they start, and we're seeing that happen. That's a good thing. Um, but they think, well, we're starting something new. We're, we're we've got new songs, and and they've never had these songs before, or they've never really done work church this way. Well they've done it's been 2000 years since the church has been around so they've done a lot of different things in church and so the bible says there's not much new under the sun right and so uh, that's so true and there are things that we need to cling on to as christians we need to to follow the example of the new testament and worship god worship jesus worship christ the way the new testament shows us how to worship and i think that's worth holding on to and so uh, that's why we're doing this so let's pray before we get started all right Father, as we go in time of uh, worship of your word, we're, we're looking to hear from you truths about how to apply to our lives, truths that we can take into our own hearts, truths that will change us and guide and direct us and help us, Lord, through this life, truths that will also lead us into your presence, Father, today and when the day comes that we might go to be with you. Father, we know that uh, through Jesus, we'll be with you because of him, because of his sacrifice on the cross, because of his powerful resurrection from the, from the dead. We know that we will be with you because of our belief and faith in him. He is more precious than silver. He is more costly than gold. He is worth all that we are and all that we have. And so, Father, I pray today that you will speak through me to these folks, Lord, whether they're in, in person or whether they're on Facebook Live, that you will speak in such a way that they hear you and that other people who maybe who don't know you yet but are are longing for you or longing for something to really build their lives on. You're that You're that thing. Father, we know that you're the thing that we can build our lives on. So, Father, we pray for you to really do the work that only you can do. I just ask that this message go out across the Internet and be bear much fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. And so just use this all today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you at home, don't forget to have a piece of paper and a, and a pencil ready or a pen uh, to take some thoughts and notes down. It's always encouraging to do that, I think. If you take down thoughts that God says, God might speak to you from something that I might not say anything about. But in one of the verses that I talk about or, or one of the passages that I refer to, there might be something that God speaks to you about that I don't say. And you want you need to drop that down, that thought or whatever it is that God lays on your heart. So uh, taking notes is important in worship because you're learning from God, I hope. I hope that you're learning from God. All right. In today's message, we're looking at Peter's description of Of the relationship between God and the church, between God and the followers of Christ, the body of Christ. You know, we are the body of Christ. There's even a song called the body of Christ. The church is not a building. Aren't you glad of that? The church is not a building. The church is this is not Cornerstone. This is the building we meet in as Cornerstone. Cornerstone is going to move in a a, a few months over on the east side of town. We're finally going to get there. And we're going to move. Cornerstone is going to move to a new building. But the building itself will never be Cornerstone. The people will be Cornerstone. And that's the encouraging thing about a church can last forever until Jesus comes back. Because the church is the people who come into the faith and grow in their faith and serve God by faith. So the church is never a building. The building can be beautiful. It can be very conducive to worship. It can be very... Uh, have an atmosphere, and environment that leads you to want to worship God, but the building cannot be the church. Notice from verses 2 and 3, Peter said that Christians' relationship with God must be fed. Does everybody know what I mean by being fed? Can anybody eat breakfast this morning? Is anybody going to eat lunch after service today? You're going to be fed. So we need to be fed. Look what it says in verse Verses 2 and 3, chapter 2. says, like newborn babies, create pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. And that's an awesome verse right there. That's a great passage right there to talk about. In order for anything to grow, it must be fed. Now you might be thinking, well, I'm done growing. I've grown as far as I can grow. I'm 58 years old. I'm 60 years old. I'm 70, 80, 90, whatever you are. You think you've done growing, but you're not. You need to be fed. And this is true for plant life. This is true for, for animal life. This is true for marine life. This is true for humans. All things need to eat to at least stay alive. But humans, people, need to be fed both physically and spiritually. And that's the major difference between us and the animal world, the kingdom. The Christian is fed spiritually by God through prayer. So as you pray, God is is really feeding you. He's comforting you. He's, He's responding to you. You might not realize that. You might not think of it that way, but He is. He's feeding you spiritually when you pray. When you study your Bible, I always like to use the word study versus read. Read is something you do for a newspaper. Study is something you do to intake and to hold on to. So we want to study the Bible. What God will feed us when we study the Bible, when we minister to others. Have you noticed how you really feel great ministering to somebody in need? Someone who's really struggling and you minister to them, somehow you encourage them, or you give them something like through the food pantry like they used to in the food pantry or, or whatever. Pray with them. Encourage them. God will feed you through that. Through worship, God is feeding you right now. I hope He is. You need it, right? Amen? And we need to be fed today. This is a world that's getting harder and harder for Christians. Even in America, it's harder for Christians to stay encouraged, to stay bolstered up and strong. We need to be fed. God does all these things. He helped, Through all these different things, He helps us to grow. He helps us to grow spiritually. In verse 3, Peter said, Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love that. I love that phrase, now that you've tasted the Lord is good. If you are a follower of Christ, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, and you are striving to follow Him, you know what it means. That the Lord is good. Now that you've tasted and seen the Lord is good. How is the Lord good? In all things. That's what I would say. The Lord is good in all things. When, the, when we read the word Lord here in 2 Peter chapter 3, talking about Jesus as God. So we're talking about God, but we're also talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Father. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. But Jesus here, Jesus is good in all things. In all things. Romans 8, verse 28, and now we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God works for the good of those who love him. In all things. Amen, right? In Matthew 7, verse 37, we're told that when people would watch Jesus and he would perform a miracle and he would heal somebody, cause them to stand up and walk, help a leper to be cleansed, uh, uh, help a blind man see or a mute person talk, or that little old lady that was that was crunched over because she had some disability and she was crunched over and he, may, he was able to help her stand straight up. And they would watch that and they were over, overwhelmed by Jesus. Mark 7 verse 37 says people were overwhelmed with amazement he has done everything well they said so when we talk about how is the Lord good he's good in all things all things then Peter tells us that Jesus was meant to be rejected he jumps right into this he just squarely jumps right into this whole idea of Jesus being rejected look at point number one on your outline if you're ready at home folks write this down Jesus, rejected by men, chosen by God. Look at verse 4 and 5 again with me. As you came to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to to God through Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that we're all mindful of how rejected Jesus really was how often he was rejected then, how often he's rejected today. Isn't that sad that people would turn away from Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of this world? Lots of people rejected Jesus to his faith. The Pharisees constantly rejected Jesus directly to his face. The rich young man walked away because he wouldn't give up all of his riches, all all of his things, because he wanted to hold on to those things. He wanted them more at that moment than he did Jesus. Even the disciples rejected Jesus. Remember Peter? He rejected Jesus three times. The gospel says that one time, in one of the instances where it explains where Jesus, or Peter rejected Jesus, Peter rejected him the third time, and Jesus turned around and looked at him. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. And Jesus knew this would happen. He knew all along that Peter was going to do this. He even told Peter it's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to happen, and you're going to do it. In Luke 17, verse 25, Jesus, speaking about himself, said to his followers this. He said, but first, Jesus, the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus knew he was going to be rejected. It was part of God's plan for him to be rejected and die on that cross. The ultimate rejection of all. But there has always been people committed to him. Amen. Aren't you glad of that? There's always been people throughout the centuries throughout the two thousand years there's always been people who were committed to Jesus Christ and stuck with him, no matter what the women the women that that went around with him and and were part of that group that discipleship group we we talk a lot about the men, but there were ladies in that group too, and they they were part of that group and they they contributed to that group they helped pay pay bills and things they they bought food and took care of things they they were part of it. And they, they stuck with him. They went to the cross and watched him die. Even John, the Apostle John, went to the cross and watched Jesus die. And after 2,000 years now, for 2,000 years plus, all kinds of people from all kinds of nations, from all races and people groups and tribes, have heard the message of Jesus Christ, heard his story, heard his message of salvation, and were drawn to follow him. Let me ask you, why do you follow Jesus? Christian why do you follow Jesus have you ever asked yourself that question have you ever really thought about that question about why do you follow Jesus you should you all of us should want to understand why we follow Jesus Christ we should want to process that we should want to figure that out why do I follow Jesus I follow Jesus because when I had no hope of something better in my life he worked in ways I could never have worked. He worked. He took care of things for me and my family. And He has done everything well for me. Everything. In the good and in the bad. So you should all want to know why you personally followed Jesus Christ. And examine yourself. Peter gives us a great reason for why we should follow Jesus. In First Peter 1, verse 20, Peter tells, tells us Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. Before the world ever began, God knew in his infinite wisdom and knowledge and ability to know the future and everything about the world he was going to create. He knew that if he gave us free will, we would mess it up. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit decided, okay, here's our plan. It's going to happen. They're not going to get very far. It's going to happen to the first couple, and it did. They're going to mess it up, and they're going to mess everybody else up, and everybody else is going to mess everybody else up, and on and on and on, and that's what's happened. Generation after generation after generation, sin has been passed down, the nature has been passed down through all of us, but yet before the creation of the world, God had a plan, and he chose Jesus to be the Savior of the world, and he was revealed in these last times for our sake. Is that a hallelujah I hear? You bet. It better be. Just think, if you can't understand that, think John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believe in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. It was God's plan all along. God knew if He gave us free will, we would mess it up. We would choose our own way instead of staying close to God. Adam and Eve did it. Everybody else has done it too. Look at verse 6. Here Peter paraphrases Isaiah. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Verse 6. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts Him will never be put to shame. See, I told you, the early church, they would go to the Old Testament and worship God and Jesus. Because the Old Testament lays the groundwork to reveal who Jesus is. And Jesus is this cornerstone that Isaiah talks about. That chosen, precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. He tells us, Peter tells us, that Jesus will never do anything to shame us. Actually, the reverse is true. We often do things that shame Him. We often bring disrepute on His name by the things that we do or say. He will never let us down. We often do let him down, don't we? He will never be defeated. Sometimes we are. I'll admit there are times in my life I've felt totally defeated as a Christian. He always comes through no matter what. And in the end, Jesus will be triumphant. and so will we if we follow him. If we walk out of our failures and into his victory, we triumph too. That's the hope he gives. That's why he's the cornerstone. Well, then point number two, Peter said this. He said, to those who believe in Jesus, Jesus is precious. What does that word precious mean? Anybody? Anybody know? Highly valuable. Something worth holding on to. Something worth giving everything else for, no matter what. I'm willing to give everything for this. And that's, Peter says, that's Jesus. There's nothing of this world that's that precious. There's nothing of, that, of the world that that's costly. There's nothing of, that world, of the world that's, that's that worth giving everything for. Look at verse 7. He says there, Now to you who believe in that this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. He describes Jesus three ways here in verses 7 and 8. He says that in verse 7, Jesus is a precious stone. In verse 7, in the middle, he says he's our capstone. And in verse 8, Jesus is a rock that causes men to stumble and fall. Be not that person who stumbles and falls, amen? Jesus is a precious stone, meaning he is highly valuable, that he is highly, also highly honorable. Our world does not understand honor today. Notice that? Watch the news. Watch what's going on in the big cities. Is it an honorable thing to burn down somebody else's property and destroy it and steal all of it, even though they had nothing to do with what happened that caused the protest in the first place? That's not honorable. That's not honorable in any way. And yet, Jesus, the most honorable person in the world, the most honorable thing, if you want to call Jesus a thing, the most honorable existence in the universe stepped into this fallen world for us. Makes him precious. He's highly valuable. He's honorable. He deserves to be honored. In the biblical sense, honor is showing great respect for something or someone. Peter said Christians are to honor Jesus. We're to consider Jesus Christ more precious than silver, more costly than gold, both in this life and also in the next. He is also our cornerstone. When a construction company in, in the ancient world would begin to build a building, they did like they do today. They put in footings in the corners, and they sunk those down deep, and they would put rock down in big rocks. Fill those corners full of, of rocks. That's the footing. And then they would lay a foundation. They would put the foundation around it, and they would go down so far there, not as far as the footies, but so far down, and fill that in with rocks, And then so it would be level with the ground. And then, before they began to build the wall, they would take the biggest rock they could find out of the most durable, durable material, granite or something like that, And, and it wasn't to be decorative. It was simply there for a purpose. And they would put it in the corner, one corner of the building, and they would build the walls off of that cornerstone. And that cornerstone would give the entire building strength and durability and and stability, and it would help it to be just a very stable building. Some of those buildings are still in existence today. They're all over Europe. The cornerstone was a point of strength. It was the largest stone in the structure. It gave the building its ability to withstand attacks by weather or by enemies. And Jesus does that for us. He is our cornerstone. We lean on Him, don't we? We go to Jesus when things are difficult. We praise Him when things are good. Paul or Peter also said that Jesus is our capstone. You know what a capstone is? The arch is a great engineering feat. Came out of the ancient world, also out of the, out of the Middle Ages. Earlier, actually, earlier than the Middle Ages. But it was used in the in across Europe, across the world. Uh, and it was a great engineering feat in the ancient world. The capstone was the stone in the middle of an arch. The arch would be the round top of an opening of a doorway. And up above there, in the center of the arch, would be this big rock. And it would be up there, wedged in. It would be angled on each end, and it would be wedged into the ark. And it would give the ark its stability. It would give it width. It would give it strength so that it, whatever it was bearing under down on it, it would not give way. And so that capstone had to be a very strong, durable rock. Because it needed to give support for whatever it was holding up. Because you don't want to walk through something that's going to fall down on you, right? No. Peter wants us to see that this is that Jesus this way. He wants us to see Jesus as our capstone. He holds up things in our life. He gives us strength. He allows us to rest on Him. We find our stability in His immovability. Yeah. But for those who reject Him, Peter said, He's a rock they stumble over. I remember growing up on the farm and we'd go out and check cattle. Sometimes we had to walk to find a out in the brush of the pasture. And every now and then, I'd stub my toe on a rock that stuck up out of the ground part way. You ever do that? Some rock, you just kick it and you stumble. You know, and you just about fall down. If you didn't, well, unbelieving people stumble over Jesus. You know how? They can't understand Him. They struggle with this whole idea that He's our Savior. They struggle with the idea that He's perfect. They struggle with the idea that He's God. They struggle with all these things about Jesus. I struggled with those things. I'm sure some of you struggled with those things before you became a follower of Christ. And they stumble over him in this life and they will stumble over him in the next if they do reject him forever. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. A blemish. You can be the most beautiful person, but if you've got a brown spot on your face, you have a blemish. And you're no longer the most beautiful person. Right? Yeah. Jesus doesn't have a blemish. He has no defects. I have lots of them, ask my wife. She'll be glad to come, down, come up with a list of things that are my defects. I have lots of defects. Jesus has none. Jesus is precious because He paid our sin debt with His blood. He was and is perfect in every way still today. He is without blemish and without defect. As our cornerstone, we lean on Him in life. As our capstone, He gives us strength to hold up under every burden and every strain this life has that we can bear through and get through it. Whatever we're going through, however long it takes to get through it, He's there as our cornerstone and our capstone. Next, number three, those who believe in Jesus are precious to God. So if you've given your life to Christ, you are precious to God. You are valuable to God. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Now what did Peter mean by chosen? That's a bit of a sticky word for some people. It has to do with our salvation. God has chosen to save you. You, 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 you. He chose you for salvation. He chose you. He chose me. It's in the Bible. The Bible tells us we, have, we, we are chosen people, but you still have to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. You still have to come to Christ and mean it. We have to believe in Him, and we have to commit ourselves to being His people in all that that means. See, Jesus doesn't just choose people to be halfway Christians. He wants us 110%. The Bible tells us we have to choose to accept the salvation Jesus offers to everyone. It's part of that free will thing. Now, God does all the work of salvation. We have to be willing to trust in Jesus and commit ourselves to being His people. In Acts 2.21, Peter said this, Everyone or anyone, I'm sorry, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. So it is possible for everyone to to be saved, though not all will be. In Titus 2.11, we're told, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So somehow God chooses us, and yet He offers salvation to everybody. Free grace has to be offered to everybody, or it's not free grace. It's certainly not grace. If you withhold grace from one group of people, and offer it only to another group of set people, and these other people can never access that, God, that grace, that's not grace. Right? Yeah, it's not grace. Cold bias. Only then, only when we accept the free offer of grace that God has offered to all people, that offers salvation to all people, only then can we become a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Only then. Other than that, we're just sinners walking around waiting to die. And I was one of them. And you probably were too. As a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God, we have duties, we have responsibilities that are part of our relationship with God. A royal priesthood, that refers to worship. We're to lead in worship. Did you know that the leader of the worship service doesn't just stand on the stage? The leaders of the worship service are all in the room together. You're all leading in worship. You just don't think that way. We're all to be an active, continual worshiper of God. We're all to be part of bringing more people in to worship God. A holy nation, a holy nation. This is referring to the fact that we're unique people. Some of us are really unique, right? Yeah, but we're a unique people. We're, we have a different agenda than the world has. That's why Christians should not join in the rioting and the burning. No matter what we need to protest, there shouldn't be, we shouldn't be burning things down. We can go protest things, but we shouldn't burn things down or riot and throw stuff and try to hurt people. We're also a people belonging to God. We owe our allegiance to our Savior before anything or anyone else, including ourselves. Including ourselves. Our allegiance must go to Jesus Christ. He's our Savior and our Lord. That's why 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20 says this. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. What were you bought with? What was the price that you were bought with? It was the blood of Jesus Christ. The lamb without blemish or defect. That's what bought you. And all this means point number four. Look at point number four in your outline. Write this down at home. Those who believe in Jesus no longer belong to this world. There was a time when I belonged to this world. I liked the things of this world back then. I still like this world. This is a great, good world. God created a great world to live in. I don't like everything of this world, but I do like a lot of it. I've been to the mountains and the Rockies. I like those. I don't want to live there, but I like them. I've been to the ocean. I don't want to live there either, but I like the ocean. I like trees. I like forests. I like. I kind of I kind of want to live around a forest. I like that. I, I lived a long time in central Kansas where it's really flat. And there's not a lot of trees other than cottonwoods. Well, I kind of like the trees of eastern Kansas and western Missouri and western Arkansas. I like this. Oh, in Oklahoma too. I-, I like these forest areas. But, we, but I don't belong to this world. Not like I used to anyway. Look at verse 11. It says there in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Sinful desires which war against your soul. The world is full of those things. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. Write this down. I think this is a really good saying. What we should value, the world doesn't. Just realize this. What we value, the world doesn't. And what we pursue, the world never will. Who do we pursue? What do we pursue? We pursue godliness, holiness. We We pursue Jesus. We strive to be better followers of Christ. The world doesn't do that. This means we must constantly choose not to do some things, to not seek some things even for enjoyment. Peter said a lot of things of this world will war against your soul, meaning it will it'll get in there between you and God and try to separate you from God even for a moment, even for a few hours or time or a few days. If it can really split you off, it really will try everything can do that. It wants to separate you from your relationship with God. It doesn't want you to rest on Jesus as your cornerstone or rest under Jesus as your capstone. It wars against our soul. The world doesn't want what's best for us. In Colossians 1, verse 21, the Bible says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation that word blemish again see sin leaves a stain on us you might not see it but it's there God sees it and Jesus Christ washes that stain away he takes that blemish and cleanses us from that blemish he he frees us from accusations you know the devil is constantly constantly attacking you telling you, are just not good enough. Well, you messed, messed that up. You had a chance there. He's constantly whispering. God doesn't really love you. Jesus can't save you. You're too much of a sinner. But yet Jesus comes to us and He strengthens us as we study the Bible, as we worship, as we minister in His name, as we help others come to know Him. Look at verse 12. It says, There live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In this statement, Peter seems to be saying that the way we live, the choices we make, the things we value can be living a part of our living witness, can be a living witness to others around us. That old saying, walk the walk and talk the talk, right? Yeah. It's easy to say something, but then you have to live it out. And it's true. We have to, walk the walk if we talk the talk if we really are followers of jesus christ our lives will bear witness to that it'll prove out our faith to unbelievers and by the way you know, it, we do this best by the way we treat them by the way we interact with unbelievers by the way that we join them in doing things and by the way that we abstain from doing things that they do and jesus said it best in matthew 5 16 let your light." shine before men, then they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I don't know how many uh, unbelieving people, non-Christian people, came through the food pantry here at Cornerstone. For ten years we had a food pantry and we ministered to all kinds of people. Muslims, Catholics, we really didn't care if they they told the counselors what they did or what kind of religion they were. If they were no religion, they came in, they got food, they got treated, they treated well with respect, they got prayed over, that had to bear some witness with them, and had to water some seeds or plant others. It's all how we interact with the world around us that proves that we really belong to Jesus or not. If you're wondering, can I have this kind of relationship with God? Can I really, can I really truly have a relationship with God like this that you're talking about, Gary? Yeah, you can. You can, and it's not that hard. It's not that hard. All you have to do is respond to God. See, God is always seeking to draw people. To his son Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. That's what Jesus said. But you got to respond to God, and God wants you to respond to Him, and He's reaching out to you. I believe He's reaching out to you right now through this message and the songs that we sang. You have to respond to Him. That's your part. That's all you get to do is respond, and then you have to obey and follow Him. To become a follower of Jesus, all you have to do is ask Jesus to forgive your sins. Be your Savior and Lord. But you have to mean it. You just can't lip service. Can't do that. And if you do mean it and you do respond, God will bless you. And Jesus will save you. And He will change your life. And everything He does in your life will be good. Everything. Romans 10 verses 12 to 13 says this, The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on him from your heart, he'll respond to you from his heart as well. And maybe you're ready to do that today. I hope so. Maybe you're ready to ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord. Here, let me help you. We're going to say a prayer in a minute. Just When I pray this prayer with you, you just repeat it back. But you got to mean it from your heart. I can't say it for you. you got to say it for yourself and mean it. And maybe somebody here today doesn't know Christ as their Savior and Lord. You can say this prayer too. You can talk to me later after the service. And for those of you on, online, if you're watching and you may you pray this prayer and you want to know how to grow in your faith, call me at the church office, 785-8430-442. I'll be glad to tell you more about how to grow as a Christian. Help you find a church if you don't live in Lawrence. Let's say this prayer. For those of you who are believers, you probably know somebody who needs to know Jesus Christ. As I pray this prayer, you pray for them. Name them by name before the Father. Ask Him to work on them and work and bring, it, bring them close. To Jesus. Let's pray this prayer together. All right? Dear God, I admit to you I'm a sinner. I acknowledge to you that I am a that I, I need the forgiveness only Jesus Christ can give. Dear Jesus, please forgive me. Come into my life. Be my Savior and Lord today and every day I pray in Christ's name. I hope you meant that if you prayed it. And if you did, please give me a call, 843-0442. I'd love to talk to you about your faith and how to grow. And so we're going to have the song of invitation now, and we're going to ask everybody to stand. And if there's anybody here today who needs to join the church family, make a profession of faith, rededicate their life, you can come forward during this time. Pray, pray with me. I'll be glad to pray with anybody who'd like to. Let's, let's stand together as we get ready to sing and pray one last prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house and in your presence. I pray, Father, you would speak to each person that's here today. Comfort those and guide and direct them. Give wisdom and discernment to those who need to hear from you. Help them to respond. Help us all to respond to you, Father, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.